preach today so that you would get a reprieve and so would I. Um, Paul and I are kind of in a small niche of like pastors who went to a certain kind of evangelical seminary where like focusing on preaching God's word, not in a super sexy way, not a lot of smells and bells and whistles and cameras and um, just like this is what God's word said. I'm going to earnestly tell you because I can only keep you here with what I win you with and I don't want to be in some arms race to get you to come to church. I want you to come because I'm going to tell you what God's word says in a way that's helpful. And so I really, um, I really admire Paul um, and he is my nomination. Like if I get hit by a bus and you need like an expositional preacher, like I would, Paul's the guy in Madison I would suggest. So I do look both ways before I cross the street though. So um, let me pray and then Paul will come and, and preach. Um, Father, I just I want to start with praying over your people. I pray that um, I know that there's folks here who are um, their lives are going well and they're doing stuff you've explicitly told them not to do in your word and I pray that this morning you by your spirit would lovingly confront them. I know there's other people who are trying to do what you've told them and their life is going terrible and I pray that you would comfort them and help them and encourage them and strengthen them and I pray for everything in between in every situation when we're all in so many different walks of life and we come to hear um, in one place, what you're saying through your word. So by your spirit, I pray that as Paul speaks, that you would filter into our minds and consciousnesses all the different applications for each of us that are rightly applied by your spirit, by means of your word, mediated through the personality of your preacher. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would inspire and help Paul as he preaches. And I pray that good would be done in your name in these next minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for having me here today. Uh, it is great, great to be here. And before I really start, I just want to say thank you in general to you, High Point, as a church. Um, you may not know this, but uh, during COVID, we were meeting outside all through the summer last year uh, into the fall, and uh, it was getting cold. <laughs> as winter approached. And so we were running out of options. Our church building is very small. If you want to social distance, you really can't get very many people in there. And so uh, we reached out to a number of churches asking if they would please let us use their bigger buildings to worship in. And High Point was the one church who said yes. Am I screwing up with this? Just take it out of there. Okay. Uh, High, church, High Point Church was the, the one church that said yes and uh, it cost them some things. They had to train us on how to clean and how to use the sound, and, and we took more finish off of the pews as we cleaned them over and over again every week. Um, but we really appreciate, appreciate the way that High Point Church doesn't just care about High Point Church. Uh, they're looking out for the whole church in Madison, and, and they see us all as one church. And so what a, what a wonderful example they are to all of our churches, and, and thank you for being so generous to us uh, during this crazy, uh, difficult time. So, all right, as Nick mentioned, we're going to be uh, looking at the opening passage of what is one of the most questioned and misunderstood books of the Bible. It's Ecclesiastes. This is a book described by some using words like pessimistic, negative, hopeless, cynical, skeptical, and even nihilistic, meaning nothing matters. And I don't know what this says about me, but when I did this sermon series in Ecclesiastes a few years ago, 
It was easily my favorite series that I've ever done. Favorite book of the Bible to study, even. I don't know if that makes me a masochist, but, uh, but I really enjoyed it. And I think one of the things that really draws me personally to this book is that it's just incredibly realistic. The author of Ecclesiastes talks about life not as it could be or as it should be, but as it actually is. He gives us this kind of unvarnished truth. It's a book of wisdom like Proverbs is, but, but where Proverbs deals in generalities, where, you know, if, in general, if you do wise things, good things happen, and, and if you do foolish things, then bad things happen. Uh, what we see from Ecclesiastes is it deals in specifics. It says oftentimes things don't work out the way they should. Sometimes you can do everything right and still come to ruin. Or you can get everything you want and still feel empty inside. Ecclesiastes is incredibly honest about all of these things. But it's also not as hopeless as some people have said. So turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Be aware that I usually preach out of the ESV translation of the Bible, and High Point was nice enough to let me just transfer my notes straight over. So I will be reading out of the English Standard Version if you want to look it up on Bible Gateway. And of course, it's right there on the screens behind me as well. So let's read this together. And would you all please stand for the reading of God's Word? Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun." Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray now that your word would do your work in each of our hearts as we learn from you today. Would your Holy Spirit be at work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this passage that we just read is an introductory section that kind of tells us what is coming in the rest of the book. It's a summary, not not of the entire book, but of the problem that will be addressed throughout the entire book. And so what I want to do is just, like Nick said, it's not sexy, but we're just going to walk through this once again, verse by verse, essentially, seeing all of the different things that the preacher here says. And that gets us to the first verse. The author introduces himself by saying, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. 
That word translated preacher is a little bit difficult to translate. It, it's the word kohelet, uh, sometimes spelled with a K in English, but usually a Q. Uh, and it means gatherer or assembler. And presumably, presumably what this means is this preacher has gathered people around him to listen to this message that he wants to bring. And there's a ton of debate over who this preacher really is. Um, certainly when you read it, it appears to be Solomon. Uh, he calls himself the son of David. Uh, he calls himself also the king in Jerusalem. David had a lot of sons, but only one of them became king, and that was Solomon. And so many people think this was Solomon, and for the sake of time, I will say that is what I think is likely true. But it is possible that someone inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote this book based on what they imagined Solomon would say. That this is sort of an authorized by God biography of Solomon after he spent this lifetime of pursuing wisdom and reputation and pleasures and, and many, many wives, right? This is kind of what Solomon would say in light of the, light, the life that he lived. I think that is also a possibility as well. However, what this means is I'm going to refer to the author as Solomon throughout this message because I do believe it is likely him, and even if it's not, it's someone who's kind of channeling him, writing a biography of sorts for him. Let's move to verse 2. This one is equally controversial, but it's also perhaps the most memorable verse in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Famously, the New International Version translates it saying, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's something that really will stick in your head, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> when I was about to uh, do this series at Gateway, uh, sometimes people will ask me, what's the next series? What are you going to be doing next? And, and I told people, Ecclesiastes. And whenever I would say that, it was inevitable where they would go, oh, meaninglessness, great. <laughs> They'd pull out their phones and Google new churches to attend, you know, things like that. <laughs> uh, but we remember that word, meaningless. However, that word in the Hebrew is a little more complex than, than the word meaningless or even vanity conveys, though those are not bad words. We'll talk about that in a second. The word here is the, the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means something like breath or mist or vapor. And so what that word is conveying is a certain temporariness. Breath and mist are things that don't last long. They're here and gone in no time. They just kind of disperse and they become inconsequential almost immediately. And so perhaps a better translation of this verse would be to say something like fleeting, fleeting, says the preacher, utterly fleeting. Everything is fleeting. I hope you can see how different that is than just straight up meaninglessness. If everything is literally meaningless, then Solomon might as well just end this book here at verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, including this statement, the end. <laughs> That's all you can say. What's the point of saying anything else? So the word meaningless is probably not the perfect translation. Vanity is probably a little bit better. In vain do you try to create meaning and things like that. However, at the same time, this is, I think, somewhat close to what Solomon is trying to communicate. It just says maybe a little too much if we take it too literally. 
Because what Solomon is saying here is that because our lives are so fleeting, in the end, all of our accomplishments and pleasures and works will fail to be all that meaningful in the grand scheme of things. In the end, it's meaningless because no matter what you did with your life, you're still dead. That's what Solomon is saying. And people are going to forget about you and they're going to take your life's work and trample on it and they're going to use your money which they didn't work for and they're going to waste it and they're going to enjoy it and you won't be able to because you're gone. That's what you see as you kind of work your way through Ecclesiastes. But when you think about life this way, it does tend to strip your life of meaning. Daily work and efforts and pleasures, these all lose importance because it's all going to just amount to nothing in the end. And so I think what we see Solomon displaying here is something of what we would call today an existential crisis. He has this moment where he's questioning what life is all about. Does it even matter, really? Woody Allen is kind of, you know, he's the guy you go to if you're wondering about existentialism. Um, He tells a story in one of his most famous movies of two elderly women who go out to lunch. And one of the ladies says, boy, the food in this place is really terrible. And the other lady says, yeah, and in such small portions, too. (laughs) And he goes on to say then, well, that's essentially how I feel about life. It's filled with loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness, and it's all over much too quickly. This really does, I think, fit the idea that the preacher, Solomon, is trying to get across. Life is just a series of fleeting, temporary events, many of which are painful and bad, and then it's over, and none of those events will matter anyway. It's all over much too quickly. And man, that is, like the people said at the beginning, that is pessimistic, right? It's more than a little bit depressing, but it is realistic, especially in a worldview that does not include God, which we'll talk about towards the end. If this life is what you're living, the question naturally arises, well, what's the point of all of this? You start to feel just like a hamster on a wheel, just kind of running in place, knowing that, you know what, no matter how fast I run, I'm still going to end up in the same place as everybody else, which is dead. So what am I doing here? That's the question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In the end, what does it matter? Just think, you can do all sorts of wise things like save up retirement, and yet you could still die in a car accident. Sometimes it doesn't matter how many salads you ate to stay in shape, you still get that terminal disease that you feared. Or in that moment where the tornado bears down on you or or you're sitting with hospice around you, in that moment it won't matter how many parties you went to or how many romantic entanglements you've been in or how much fun you've had, you're going to die and perhaps sooner than you'd like. What does man gain with all the things he does? It's almost as if Solomon is looking down on humanity the way that we might look down on on an anthill. Have you ever just sat and watched ants? You look and and you, you see, like, why are they all running around and doing all of these things? What's the point? They they scurry around building that anthill. They're trying to make a bigger and better anthill, but we look at it and we say, who cares? 
if your, aunt is, if your hill is this high off the ground or this high? What does it matter? Elon Musk has a quote that I've been pondering lately. He says, I always had an existential crisis trying to figure out what does it all mean. But he says, I came to the conclusion that if we can advance the knowledge of the world, if we can expand the scope and scale of consciousness, then we're better able to ask the right questions and become more enlightened. He says, that's the only way to move forward. So he says, if we can just make this world smarter and more advanced and more enlightened, then we can move forward as human beings. And so essentially he's saying, that's what gets me out of bed every morning. That's why I exist. That's why I'm here. But I have to imagine, if Solomon heard him say that, that he would say to Mr. Musk two things. First, I think he would say, how can you talk about moving forward if you don't even know what the goal is? How can you move forward if you don't know where you're going or why you're here at all? You can't make progress unless you know what you're making progress toward. So first figure out why you're alive, and then we can start talking about progress. I think that's the first thing that he would undoubtedly say. But secondly, as he listened to Musk talk, Musk talk about all of these advancements of humanity, I imagine him also saying, who cares? You're essentially just an ant pushing dirt until you die. And yes, you can get excited and say, this anthill is going to be so amazing. We're going to whip this world into shape and build amazing things, things like rockets and, and Dogecoin and things like that. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It's still just an anthill that you're going to die in just like everybody else. As we build up this world, we're just building a better casket to die in. That's essentially what Solomon would say. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. At this point, at least in the book, the answer is nothing. Verses four through eight, here we see the world is going to keep spinning on without us. I'll read it real quickly. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not see satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Solomon is, is saying, soon enough, you're going to be gone, but the sun will keep rising the wind will keep ever-blowing circles around the, the earth. The streams will keep flowing and the sea will keep filling without ever becoming full. Everything will continue to march on without you. And verse 8 says, we will never be satisfied then with this weary world that we live in. Again, heavy things. Again, we can look at something uh, Woody Allen talks about. Uh, in this movie, he's... He walks up to this cute, presumably French woman, woman at an at a, uh, art museum. And he's nervous. He doesn't know what to say to her, but he says, well, that's a lovely Jackson Pollock painting, isn't it? And she says, yes, it is. So he says, what does it say to you? She says, it restates the negativeness of the universe, the hideous, lonely emptiness of existence, nothingness, 
The predicament of man forced to live in a barren, godless eternity like a tiny flame flickering in an immense void with nothing but waste, horror, and degradation forming a useless, bleak straitjacket in a black, absurd cosmos. So he says, what are you doing Saturday night? <laughs> Life is not fun with this kind of mindset. Everything is worthless and life is a ticking clock leading to non-existence and yet everything will just kind of go on without us. So why go on a date, right? That's how absurd that, that's, that's why we laugh at that. It's so absurd. Why would you go on a date in light of all of that? If this is just a barren, godless eternity. It's absurd. Lastly, verses 9 through 11. Spoiler alert, this is also sad. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? Essentially, no. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet, yet to be after, among those who come after. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying history is fleeting. What has been, what is, and what will be is so fleeting that it will not add up to much. And we can get excited about old things, and we can get excited about new things, but nothing will really change, and it's all going to be forgotten one day, including you. The more things change, the more things stay the same. That's what he's saying. I think every year, somehow we watch some part of the Academy Awards, and I'm always struck, even moved, by the in-memoriam part, right? That's where they show all of the actors and directors and screenwriters and so on that, that died that year. And I, I think of the actors and, actors, and actors and actresses and screen, screenwriters and directors that are there watching this in-memoriam part because I assume that they have to be thinking, that's going to be me someday. All of my whole career, all of these things that are so important to me are going to be reduced to two seconds of clapping and a little quick picture of me put up on a screen. And yet, we kind of live with the absurdity of that, don't we? They still really badly want to win an Oscar. Oh, it's going to change my life if I can just win this Oscar. But the best case scenario is you get two seconds of clapping for you. That's it. You're going to replace those people. You're going to be those people. Nothing new really happens under the sun. I can think of myself. Someday, I assume my memory will consist of just a small picture in a small frame uh, on my grandkids, or if I'm lucky, my great-grandkids' wall, right? Maybe they can remember a story or two about me or something like that. But that's it. We will all be forgotten one day. Maybe we'll do something that people will remember, but they still won't know us, right? Like, how valuable is it to be a piece of trivia? That, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. He did this. No, history is fleeting, None of it will matter in the end. Now, all of this feels very depressing. But I want you to know that even in these decidedly negative verses, there is a ray of hope. And that ray of hope comes from a phrase that we see twice in our passage here, but that is going to come up 27 more times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's the phrase, under the sun. We saw it already in verse 3, and we also saw it in verse 9. 
Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 9, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, why does that give us hope? In fact, every time Solomon talks about what's under the sun, it's in a negative. Our toil doesn't matter under the sun. Pleasure doesn't matter under the sun. History doesn't matter under the sun. Life under the sun is fleeting, and in fact, it's so fleeting that it's basically worthless. It's a mist. It's a breath. It's here, and it's gone. But you see, the question this raises for us is, what's beyond the sun? If this is what's true under the sun, then what's beyond it? If there's no hope under the sun, then maybe we need to look past the sun. The, perfect, the person who's depicted here, Solomon or someone else or whatever it might be, is speaking as if this world under the sun is a closed system. No God, no after, afterlife, this is all there is. And it's not that good, right? And for the person who assumes this, he's saying, if this world is all there is, then we're just basically all building anthills that are going to be stepped on one day. It's not too unlike what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 19. He's talking about the resurrection, right? Our hope is in the next life, not this one. But here's what he says. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. If life under the sun is all we get, then we should be pitied. Then there is no point to all of the toil that we do under the sun. What could we possibly gain? How could anything matter? But you see, if you connect what you're doing in this fleeting life to an eternal God, who offers eternal life, then what that means is suddenly this life is not so meaningless. Suddenly life is not so fleeting because it has eternal significance and because it's lived for an eternal God who will infuse our lives with meaning and who gives us eternal life beyond the sun and eternal rewards in heaven for the things that we do under the sun. You see, the, the good news about Ecclesiastes is simply that everything under the sun is not everything. There is more, amen? amen. There is greater knowledge. There is life after death. There is heaven. There is a God who knows infinitely more than you and who loves you infinitely. And he's there. And he's not only there, but he came under the sun. And he lived a fleeting life and he died so that we could have eternal life. So we could go beyond the sun to be with him one day. Let's pray. Let's thank him for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful blessing of eternal life. that you, by granting us this life that goes on, have infused our lives with meaning. And now we can live for you, knowing that it won't just last for 80, 90 years if we're lucky, but it will literally last forever. 
And we can know that when we worship you today, like we've done already, that, that that's going to go on into eternity. That what we're doing is not for nothing. We're not doing this in vain. We're doing it for you who have given us life, who has given us life. Lord, may we glory in our God who gives this life meaning and who gives us eternal life with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. What a wonderful blessing. May we never take it for granted. May we never find our lives meaningless. May we always live for you. Pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.